you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 21 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. 21 shows, is that the key in the door? Is that what they used to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, last week, Mark, you will recall we had a wonderful discussion with retired Labour Court Chairman Kevin Duffy. To paraphrase former Ireland manager Steve Staunton, what that man doesn't know about labour law isn't worth knowing. Mark, it was like a class reunion for you, though, of course. You were, you were, Indeed, yeah, 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 you guys right. had been in the King's Inns together. Exactly. We, 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 we worked at the, at the co-face of uh, legal education. That's right. No, it was really good. I loved that interview. Uh, well, today we are very much back in the law library as our guest is Barrister Martin Canney. All legal practitioners will know Martin as the oracle on the statute of limitations and limitation periods in general as they apply in Ireland. As you know well, Mark, it's very important to get your proceedings issued in time, isn't that it? I remember when I was in the King's Inn, somebody saying, well, the statute of limitations is something that will particularly worry you for the first 30 or 40 years of your practice. Well, Martin has all the answers and we're going to talk to him about why he has updated and brought out a third edition of his book. But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. Uh, And we're going to start with a judicial review into an assessment which was carried out by the Child and Family Agency, or TUSLA as it's better known. This is the case of JPP versus the Child and Family Agency, a decision of Mr Justice Alexander Owens. This case concerned an allegation of sexual abuse and in the investigation which had been carried out by TUSLA, it was deemed that the person who was the subject of the investigation was not afforded fair procedures. That's right, yes. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, the the, the, um, Child and Family Agency clearly deals with a lot of these cases of sexual uh, abuse on the part of um, uh, uh, sexual abuse of children by parents. And obviously, it's it's a tricky issue in the sense that if an allegation is well-founded, then obviously then that parent should be very restricted in in any access to the child. Um, but of course, if it's not well-founded, then then it, it leads to a massive injustice yes. and that a parent is, is kept away from the child. Um, and so the, the, the work has to be done very fairly. And what happened in this case was that they, they just determined that the allegation had been well-founded. But the, when the, this was the subject matter of judicial review and the parent in question said that he had not been afforded um, a proper a proper opportunity to respond to these allegations and that was deemed... So a, a basic lack of fair procedures, basically. A, exactly, yeah. And I mean, natural justice applies to these kind yes. of investigations as much as it does to many yeah, other... Yeah, diffi- difficult type scenario, but yes, yes absolutely, natural yeah, justice yeah. and fair procedures. Mm-hmm. Okay, and next to our second case, and that also involves Tusla. Uh, however, this concerned the decision, a decision which prevents a grandmother having access to her grandchildren. This is the case of LL versus the Child and Family Agency and this is a decision of Ms Justice Neve Highland. Another difficult one, Mark. The grandmother in this case was seeking access to her four grandchildren. Uh, the refusal appears to be mainly on technical grounds. Well, it's not exactly technical grounds. I mean, the, the, the issue here is, although the name of the case is LL and the Child and Family Agency, this is a judicial review of the court 
determinations, district and circuit court. And these days, there was a time when you would have named the circuit court judge or the, named the circuit court as a defendant. That doesn't happen anymore. So, in fact, the what, what Ms. Justice Highland found was that the determination of the courts was either out of time in the sense that she hadn't looked for the judicial review or the applicant hadn't looked for judicial review within the appropriate time limit, um, or that the the decisions of the court weren't unreasonable because the problem that was being complained about was not the decision of the court but the recommendation of the Child and Family Agency. And what was clear from the case in question was that the Child and Family Agency were prepared to allow the grandmother access to the children yes, in certain if, conditions. Yeah, yeah. On certain conditions. And so, in fact, she shouldn't have been challenging the decisions of the court. She should have been really cooperating with the Child and Family Agency. And obviously, it, she could have done what the person in the previous case did and and um, and maybe suggested that the decision of the Child and Family Agency itself was at fault. But that wasn't what happened in this case. Okay, okay very interesting. Our final case today also involves a decision of Ms. Justice Highland. This is the case of In Re uh, BW. And this is a wardship case, which are always very, very difficult cases. Um, and this, the facts in this case are very challenging. It involved the transfer of a patient to a hospital in London for specialist eating disorder treatment. Yeah. Uh, this treatment apparently was not available in Ireland. Um, however, there were suggestions that the ward was not happy about this. Yeah, I mean, so, so it, I mean, these cases, again, you just it, it, very, very difficult cases. Um, if somebody it has a, a, an eating disorder um it's obviously a psychiatric illness and where they are, where their life or their, their long-term health is in danger, um, the courts have the power to override their consent or their lack of consent to treatment. Um, and in this case, the the the, the respondent um, had been treated for a while in Ireland and it was deemed by her medical practitioners that the appropriate treatment was not available in Ireland and that she should therefore be removed to the United Kingdom to be treated in a specialist hospital. And um, But she wasn't completely happy about this, was she? She wasn't completely happy. I think, as with a lot of the, these cases, um, she... I, 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 it's a bad way of paraphrasing it to say she didn't know what she wanted, but yes. it wasn't a question of her necessarily saying no. She wasn't prepared to go, but I think because she she did a rep, she she was in court and she was involved in this hearing as is as is right when it's, yes, when, when it can can happen. But the um, but basically, I mean, we, it was we a matter for the high court to make the yeah, decision for exactly. Her. I mean, we discussed it in a recent case. I mean, the 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 president of the high court has what's called parents patriae jurisdiction and has the power to make decisions about somebody whose who, whose decision making um, ability is in some way impaired. And obviously, that arose in this case. Um, and what one of the things that's interesting from a technical point of view is that the decision of Miss Justice Highland was then to be passed to the Court of Protection in the UK because obviously one. She's out of the jurisdiction. She, she's she's out of the jurisdiction of the court as well. So they and have so a duty of care then. They, they, therefore, the, the, the English courts would have to supervise uh, what happened. Okay, very good. Brilliantly explained as always, Mark. Back shortly with Martin Canny. Silence in the fifth court.
Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio barrister and colleague Martin Canny, who's known to every legal practitioner out there as the oracle when it comes to matters to do with periods of limitation and the like. And I know, do you, I know you do loads of other stuff as well, Martin. But uh, where we've brought you in to talk about the third edition of your book, Limitations of Action. Uh, when, when, I, when I kind of invited you in, I was thinking it must be the second edition, but it's the third edition. Yes, Peter. 13 years that have passed since the first edition seem to have gone by very quickly. But here we are. Yeah, absolutely. So just we'll, we'll, we'll get to why you uh, wrote a book about kind of limitation of actions and the fact that there wasn't one and you were the one who jumped into that space. I'm curious about that. But the third edition, when did it come out and when did you finalise that? The online version of it went live in the middle of December. Wow. But So online books, wow, okay. But as it might now be more more of a problem with legal textbooks due to Brexit issues, it actually only hit the shops in hard copy at the start of January. So it's it's jumping off the shelves, I presume. I won't get sales <laughs> figures for a while, but it, uh, it, it should sell quite well. Um, more interestingly, though, and perhaps the best metric of how popular a book is from a totally different perspective is that the second edition turned out to be the book that most copies went missing from, the law library. Wow. Do you know what? There's no surprise in that. So let's go back to 2010. Obviously, it took you a while to write the book, so we're probably going back to 2008, 2009. Why did you decide to write this book? There's more of a trend towards, sorry, there is a trend towards specialization in our profession over time. And a large part of my practice is a generalist civil chancery practice. And at the same time, various different people in giving me, you know, a heads up about what might be useful for my career said that it might be a good idea to specialise in an area, develop a niche in an area. And so that's what led me to think about what areas of law were lacking a book. And there was, in fact, a legal textbook, a very good legal textbook, Brady and Kerr, on the statute of limitations. But the most recent edition of that book is all the way back to 1994. So by 2010, there'd been a lot of changes in the law, and I thought there, there was a need for a new edition or a new book in that area. Okay, so so where do you start when you're writing a book like this? Obviously, you go back to, I suppose, the 1957 Act, the Statute of Limitations. I suppose that has to be something that you look at. And obviously, there's been various different amendments over the years. So is that where you start? Or what do you do? I mean, obviously, as you say, there was a pre-existing textbook from Brady and, and Kerr. Is that Tony Kerr? Yes, Tony Kerr. And the, James Brady, was it? Of James UCD, Brady. the late, yes. great James Brady. Yes, okay. Uh, so so how, do, how do you start to go about it, Martin, you know? You have, to, you have to produce 300 pages. It's, it's tough going. Well, we're up to 500 pages oh, in the wow, thir- okay. third edition. But um, the first thing was deciding, obviously, how many chapters and, and the division of, of labor between what were initially 16 chapters. And then I broke one of the chapters down into a, a number of uh, smaller, shorter chapters. And then doing lists of all of the cases and reading every single case in the book. And there are no shortcuts. That you sound like Mark Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's it. So you had to go go over everything. Yes. Okay. All right. And then, um, so how do you do that when you're when you're running your practice and you're doing you know you're representing people during the day, etc. Well, I look back and I'm surprised I had the time to write that first edition because that was the most time consuming one. Every single case was a new case to me, apart from a few that I'd read for different adverse possession cases or other cases where I had some reason to read them before that. And um, no children at the time is probably the main reason why it was possible. And uh, taking a few uh, of the court breaks, uh, Christmas break, Easter break, summer break, and just reading a lot of limitation cases, writing the book. The 
second and third edition maybe took three to six months of reading up on the new cases. So they're more manageable in terms of the amount of time. But um, you get busier over time and I have three children now and they're all at primary school level and um, I'm busier with my work. So uh, September. I'm sure, like myself, they were very helpful in terms of reading the, the up-to-date case. Well, and sitting on my lap and pressing mm. buttons on the um, laptop and saying, Daddy, does that look good now? Yeah, I, I suppose I'm curious. You, you, obviously, as Peter said, you had to choose to, to the area. I mean, one of the things that's funny about the statute of limitations is that it's one of the areas that, that the, the courts try to apply in a kind of black and white way, where sometimes, they, you know, you can sort of stretch things on the basis of should we say, you know, if, if there's fairness or whatever, you know, if somebody has a case one day and then the statutory period expires the next day, that's it. They no longer have a case. And um, it, it, do you think, are the courts tending to be a little bit more, uh, are they try, trying to sort of keep that strict approach or are they looking more towards a kind of means of overcoming that particular problem? Yes. So there are fixed limitation periods governing different types of cause of action. And the one which is invoked the most is the two-year limitation period for a personal injuries action. And in that particular area, there is the ability to invoke some flexibility, and that's the date of knowledge provisions. If you didn't know you'd suffered a significant injury or the causation between something that occurred and the injury, then there are reasons why the court is permitted to extend time. But in contractual cases and in non-personal injuries tort cases, there can be significant difficulties with the courts identifying obvious admitted wrongdoing and somebody who's only marginally out of time and finding their hands tied. I mean, I'm thinking of, in particular of the Tui and Courtney case where, I mean, you know, somebody looking to sell a house discovered that there'd been was certainly a prima facie case of negligence on the part of the solicitor when they bought the house. But because more than six years had passed, the court effectively said, well, the, the knowledge was available to you. But of course, if you're not a lawyer and you don't actually look through the title documents yourself, you don't know these things until it's brought to light by your conveyancing solicitor on sale. I mean, that, that seemed instinctively to be a very hard decision. Yes, there are some difficult distinctions that have to be drawn in that area. On the facts of, of Tuhi and Courtney, so it was a situation where the plaintiff bought what he thought was a property, and in layman's terms, he owned the property after he bought it, but what he bought in reality was only the remainder of the last 60 or 70 years of a lease. And so at that point in time, it had a certain value, but if he was unable to expand the, it's still a, a reasonably long period of a lease, but expand it to a fee simple interest, it declines in value very rapidly. And so he shouldn't have paid what he actually paid. He had all of the facts from immediately after something went wrong, and he just didn't appreciate the significance of the facts. So it's not a great example, and it is the leading case in, in the entire area of non-personal injuries tort cases where there's a strict six-year time limit to bring proceedings. But there's another principle that doesn't actually feature in the case, but it is relevant. It would have influenced the judge's thinking, which is that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And um, so Mr. Tuhi lost his case and he brought a constitutional challenge and the courts held that it wasn't an unfair outcome that, that justified the court striking down the provision. What do you make of that decision? Sorry, Martin. It's correct on the facts, but um, there have been two more recent Supreme Court decisions which have raised other issues uh, 
Brandley v. Dean is a property damage case involving cracking in a building and Cantrell v. AIB is an investment product uh, and investment advice gone wrong case in relation to what were called the Belfry Funds. And in both of those cases, the Supreme Court, in one case, McKechnie J, and in the other case, Donald O'Donnell, um, still just before he was appointed uh, Chief Justice, commented that Tuhi v. Courtney may be open for re-argument before the Supreme Court. Okay. And can I just, before we get into this, is brilliant, we're getting into case law and it's really, really interesting. But can I just ask you the philosophical question? I mean, do we need limitation periods? I mean, if I have a problem with you, does it really matter, you know? I mean, it's all about the efficiency of the courts, I suppose. I mean, that's that's probably the primary function and things have to be taken when people will know the evidence and will be aware of what has occurred. So there are obviously strong reasons why there should be limitation periods, but there can be huge unfairness in them. The proper ordering of society does require limitation periods. Now, there can be a lot of disagreement about where to draw the line. So in the 1900s, the original, the, the pre-statute um, limitations, 1957 statutory provisions we inherited from England, they had 20-year time limits for lots of things. And these were shortened over time to six years. And now the Law Reform Commission has suggested that we move to two years, but extendable on date of knowledge grounds. So these are all viable options. And um, there certainly seems to be a bit of impetus towards shortening the limitation period, but adding a date of knowledge extension. I mean, I suppose arising from Peter's question, what's curious is that in Ireland we have no limitation period for criminal actions so that, you know, you can, as, as we all know, you can be tried for something that you did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, whereas if there was a, a civil action arising from that, that would be lost after whether it's two or six years, depending on the, uh, the, the type of action. Yes. Actually, one further point to answer Peter's question, which is that all professionals and people providing services on an economic basis, they have insurance to cover the losses and they need to know how long they require insurance for. And yes, insurers need it's hugely to practical, of course. How well, long yeah. they can be sued for. And seven years insurance after you retire is, is a reasonably long period to have to pay for insurance, runoff cover. And then... Um, Mark, your point about the criminal proceedings and prosecutions not having a time limit, that is a problem. So there is a gap in the Irish legislation. If you steal somebody's car and you, somebody only finds out where their stolen car is in Ireland after six years, the thief owns your car. In England, they have an extension, that extension of time that the thief doesn't own your car and can never own your car. And for personal injuries cases, in addition to the date of knowledge grounds, they have uh, an ability to disapply the limitation period altogether for personal injuries actions if it's just and appropriate. The test is obviously a lot more uh, nuanced than that. But um, there are cases where a rapist wins a million pounds on the lottery and then nobody had bothered suing him for damages because he lived in a council house or had no money or whatever other reasons. But now he suddenly has a million pounds and the victim sues him 10 or 20 years later and there's no chance that he gets to keep the million pounds on limitation grounds. Okay, wow. Okay, I, I, I'm thinking in terms of fraud as well, is is if, if you identify fraud, there's no limitation period there really, is there? That's correct. So fraud or fraudulent concealment, the time limit starts to run again from um, 
or until um, you know or reasonably ought to have known about the fraud or the fraudulent concealment. Yes. So it's date of knowledge again. That's that's kind of that's kind of the the, the principle that's kind of governing all of this sort of stuff. Um, but I suppose again, going back to my philosophical pondering. I mean, recently we had the announcement in relation to Donald Deroshta, the famous Deroshta case that occupied so much court time over the years. Uh, and I mean, this went back to the early seventies. And now in 2023, well, 2022, a couple of months ago, the man was finally vindicated, you know, and I know there was there was huge kind of court considerations and constitutional considerations in rela- relation to whether he was out of time or whether he should be allowed to bring proceedings, etc. I mean, the ultimate outcome would seem to justify a little bit of leniency in this area. Yes. And Ireland doesn't doesn't approach things in the same way, in my mind anyway, as the stereotypical German or Northern European who would say that these are the rules and this is how we apply the rules. In reality, in practice, there are lots of cases where there would be a statute of limitations defense open to a defendant, but they decide not to plead or rely upon limitation or to make an offer of settlement to avoid the bad publicity of a trial. Yes. So that does feature in the Irish legal system as well. And it does happen, doesn't it? I mean, I've had cases myself, personal injuries cases, where the defendants have, they haven't pleaded the statute, even though they they probably could have. Yes. In in personal injuries cases, a lot of insurance companies are afraid that the statute of limitations will turn into a sideshow and a judge will think of some complicated reason why they don't get to succeed on that point and it detracts from their overall defence. But in other higher profile cases, and I'm not thinking of any in particular, there are various almost class actions where the state or the relevant defendant would have had a limitation defense and then doesn't rely on it. And I'm thinking in particular that there are a lot of cases currently pending against uh, in relation to child sexual abuse, and very few of them lead to reasoned decisions of the, cor- of the courts on the limitation defense. So it looks like there's a couple of hundred cases against Scouting Ireland and then there's a couple of hundred cases against Dr. Michael Shine in Our Lady of Lord Strahda. And lots of the individuals who suffered this abuse knew they'd suffered the abuse and went to the Gardaí a long time ago. But despite there being hundreds of cases, the the limitation defence isn't actually run as a preliminary ground of objection or even at trial in in some of these cases. Does that surprise you, Martin? I mean, is that... Like it's there to be used, I suppose, is it? As I said, um, Ireland, I won't say that we're, we're like the southern Italians, but we're like maybe the northern Italians. So we, there's a bit of flexibility in how Irish people order their affairs. Okay, very good. Okay. Now, let's get back to the editions of the book. You brought out the first in 2010. When was the second? When did the second come out? 2016. So there's symmetry between... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so every six years, a new book, a new version of the book. So what's new about this? What merit? Why did you have to bring uh, an updated version of the book out, Martin? What's, what's new? Well, part of it is my commissioning editor, Pamela Moran, is very persistent and very nice and I think she wanted one more book to fill out her publication roster for the autumn, maybe autumn of last year, of the previous year even, but we we got around to it eventually. And then I do get some positive feedback from colleagues at the bar and from solicitors. I see a huge positive feedback. That they like having a single database compendium with the relevant cases reasonably updated, which saves them having to do a search 
So if I hadn't brought out the third edition, a search going back seven years so they could know that they haven't missed a trick or that they won't be surprised when the limitation issue comes on for hearing in their case. And having the new edition out, they have something which will then be more up to date and but maybe both sides will be able to go into court just with my book and uh, know that it's reasonably up to date and it'll contain the relevant points. Then when I did a simple search against just the phrase statute of limitations, I found that there had been 475 new Irish judgments which use that phrase in the last six years. Wow. And a lot of these references might be a bit peripheral, you know, the person may have pleaded limitation, but the judgment deals with the case on its merits. But it's only because I actually skim read all of these judgments that I can see which ones have contributed something to the law and then update the relevant paragraph in the book to save somebody else scrambling around to see um, if there'd been any changes on the law in their particular area. And I was aware of, of a couple of particular high-profile cases. I've mentioned the Brand Levy Dean and the Cantrell case. So um, the tort non-personal injuries chapter was substantially rewritten. Okay. And why was that? Why was it substantially rewritten? The Supreme Court in 2012 delivered a judgment called Gallagher v. ACC, which was the ACC Solid World Bonds litigation. And it gave the first detailed, considered Irish... Um, Supreme Court judgment on financial loss cases. But there were still a lot of English cases that were relevant and there was no equivalent Irish case or no Irish case that had considered them and said, this is the Irish law. And there's a bit of divergence between English and Irish law in that area because in England, they passed what was called the Latent Damage Act in 1986 which adds a date of knowledge provision in the area of financial loss cases, and there's no equivalent in Ireland. And indirectly or surreptitiously or due to human nature, it's led to judges in England becoming stricter on the similar or the same wording of the test for time running in financial loss cases because they have the ability to extend time if this particular person didn't know about it. And when you're talking about financial loss cases, is this particularly to do with uh, either negligence on the part of your financial advisor or sort of what we might call negligent misrepresentation on the part of somebody selling a financial product? Is, it, is that the kind of issue we're talking about? Yes, that's, that's correct. Or negligence in the structuring of a product, even if nobody particularly gave you advice about it, that the bank was under an obligation to sell you a product that made sense and wasn't destined to be a terrible investment. And and so what, what has arisen then is that, is the test now discoverability or manifestation? I mean, is it the, t- the date at, upon which you find that you realise that you have bought a substandard product? No. So that's the test in England. And in Ireland, the issues have been approached or picked off piecemeal by the courts. And the Cantrell case was one where the product was what the product was and people were complaining about the structure of the product and it being a leveraged product and they didn't realize that a receiver could be appointed and loans could be called in and it might be forced into closure or sale of assets at a, at a low point in the market. But prior to that negative end, end of the investment, for many years the stock market was booming through the 2000s. So some of these people invested their money in 2002 and then they only found out in 2009 or 2010, that um, their investment had been unsuccessful or had lost money. So the question is whether time ran from 2002, when 
they had entered into the investment or from 2009 or 10 when they had a bad outcome. Or as the courts found, the date in typically, there's a lot of these cases, but typically 2008 when the market had started declining. See, And that was considered to be the, the date of accrual or the date when time started to run. Yes. And I mean, it it sounds on the face of it as if that means that somebody who on the face of it had made a lot of money for a number of years and the market turns down. And it's only then that it's not just the losses, it's the discoverability, it's the discovery at that stage that there's actually something wrong with the products, that it, that it doesn't contain the protections it ought to have. Or? No, the courts have struggled with discoverability. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the arguments that, w- that was raised, that was pushed, that It was only when they discovered that, when they were told that financial year 2008, that the products had had started losing money very rapidly. The court said it wasn't when they found out if you're on holidays and never got the letter, if you had suffered ill health or were in hospital or weren't a ward of court or under disability in that sense. That that wasn't relevant. Instead, the date the accountants signed off on the accounts, even if they never told anybody, was the and if those accounts showed that the product was in a loss-making situation. Because as a basic principle of tort law, you have to have suffered loss in order to bring proceedings. Okay. Um, And then, I mean, can we compare that then? You you mentioned Brandley and Dean. Now, that's a construction negligence issue. And for years, they talked about there being no discoverability test in relation to construction, so that if there was defect in construction and more than six years had passed, and then say, a, a wall blew down in a high wind or, or something along those lines, it, it was too late because the, 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 um, the six years has passed. And then Brandley, they basically, although they kind of accepted there was no discoverability test, they then said that where, where the damage was manifest in the sense of capable of being discovered and capable of being proved, that that was the test. Is that can you can you draw the distinction between discoverability and that, or is that the discoverability effectively being accepted by the back door, or is that the fifth secret of Fatima? So Brandley v. Dean is quite an unusual case in how it came before the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court was asked to do and what it actually did. And um, I know I, I had a cup of coffee with Richard Lyons, who's for the plaintiff, between the Court of Appeal decision where he had succeeded in reversing the High Court judge who held the case with statute barred and while he was thinking about what he'd say to the Supreme Court. And his focus was on retaining a sum of money for his clients so they could fix the crack in the wall, not on the statute of limitations points. And so in the best traditions of the bar, he ran as narrow an appeal as he could and succeeded in holding on to the money for his clients. The High Court judgment of Mr. Justice Kearns is very short. So it's quoted in full in the Supreme Court judgment of Mr. Justice McKechnie, and it's only about one page long. And the evidence given in the High Court was very um, net. There are only two witnesses of fact and no expert witnesses. And um, the plaintiffs had hired a building contractor to build two houses for them and an engineer to review the works and to certify compliance with the building regulations. And then They issued proceedings more than six years after the building had been completed, but they said less than six years after they first saw cracking in the walls. And Mr. Justice Kearns in the High Court said, no, the building was defective from when it it had been finished because as a matter of contract law and tort law and everything, the builder up until that date could have put extra concrete in or could be assumed to have had that ability. And then the fact that cracks were only noticed 
nine months later isn't particularly relevant. But then when Mr. Justin McKechnie, uh, who um, echoed um, Mr. Sus Ryan in the Court of Appeal, when McKechnie looked at it, he said, well, the evidence here was so net that the only evidence as to when damage had happened was the person who said, I saw cracks in the wall. And the defects in the foundation that wasn't deep enough or didn't have the wrong mix of materials in and of itself wouldn't have been sufficient for somebody to have suffered recognizable damage that sets the clock running. It was only when the defects in the foundation caused damage to the walls which manifested itself with cracking. So in Brandley v. Dean, there was no difference between manifestation and discoverability because it was assumed that the day the person saw the cracks in the walls, which were obvious cracks in a simple build of a house, was the same as the day the cracks occurred. Okay, brilliant, brilliantly explained, Martin. And, and is that really, I mean, I'm curious when you say 450 cases that you saw had references to the statute of limitations, and that was your starting point to kind of update your book. Um, are we seeing, is that the sort of judicial reasoning we're seeing in these points that whereby the Supreme Court in this effectively allowed an extension uh, by bringing in the date of knowledge as opposed to the traditional view that was expressed by Justice Nicholas Kearns in the High Court? Is that, are we seeing that, that sort of reasoning from the court? Are the courts more open to sort of try and give the plaintiff the opportunity to bring their case? It's funny how people assimilate information and the uh, the wisdom of crowds is, is a phrase that comes to mind. And I can see from your, the questioning from both of you and the... The wonderful questioning. The wonderful questioning. <laughs> astute questioning. <laughs> that there is a view that discoverability has de facto been introduced as a test and that it's it's not a case of um, the, the poor individual will be told that there was a crack they couldn't see right behind the chimney and therefore time's running. And in truth, there are very few cases where that finding is made, that there's a big crack, you didn't know about it, but that's tough luck because discoverability isn't the test. So it's not that Judges are paying lip service to the precise formulation of Mr. Justice McKechnie, but that in a, in a human way, the judges apply the test in a way that the wrongdoer ends up footing the bill. Okay. Martin, that is, this has been really, really, really interesting, really good. Okay, well, we've talked about your book and the third edition of your book. Now we want to try and talk about another book. So you know the question. Are there any other legal books other than your own wonderful book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yes, indeed. So I listened to your podcast with Frank Buttimer a yes. few weeks ago, and that was really very entertaining and it was informative. And he referred to the trial by Franz Kafka. And then he referred to a different movie, a, a civil action. So that had me thinking that um, the trial by Franz Kafka is actually probably my favourite legal book and it's it's quite a weird book in its own way and a man is woken up at dawn and he's accused of something and he doesn't know Joseph K Joseph K so I recommend people read that book if they want to get a little taste of Franz Kafka but there are two movie versions of the Franz Kafka book which are probably a more time efficient way for people to dip their toes into his world and the first one is a 1962 movie version directed by Orson Welles, who also features in it. And the second is a 1993 version, which features um, Anthony Hopkins and Kyle MacLachlan, MacLachlan who's uh, better known from... Um, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. 
And the Orson Welles version is actually regarded as one of the best movies he made in his career. By that stage, he was... And they were both called The Trial, were they? The Trial, yes. Yeah, okay. He was traveling around Europe and it was filmed between Paris and Yugoslavia. And it's um, it, it uses the book as the starting point, but it, it is quite artistic and there's lots of... Um, theatrical shots and uh, it's quite a, a trippy type of version of it and the Anthony Hopkins one is a more orthodox mainstream version so both of those versions of the trial are well worth watching if anybody can find them on Netflix or that is fascinating Mark. and of course Orson Welles has a very strong Irish connection as we know Absolutely. he, he as a 16, the 16 year old he starred in the Gate Theatre and always said he started at the top and worked his way down so there you go he thought that was the high point of his career Martin Canny author extraordinaire of a very valuable book. And can we can we put the message out? Anybody who has copies of Martin's book hiding under the bed or in the back of the car, uh, bring them back to the library. Isn't that it? That's it. If it's, if it's the number one missing book from the library, we want to redress that here on The Fifth Court. Martin, can we thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thank you both very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. That's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Barrister Martin Canny, for coming in and talking to us about the most recent edition of his book, the third edition. I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Conal Moroyne, and to the Dublin South podcast studios, and in particular to Lee Brennan, sound engineer, for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. If you have any comments or any legal stories you'd like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. Or any general feedback, Mark. We're always delighted to get a bit of feedback. Absolutely. Just stop us in the street and tell us how much well, we you're did. enjoying the show. We got a lovely show. pat on the shoulder there, we did, didn't we, yeah. outside a, a hostelry in Dublin recently? Absolutely, uh, yeah. As somebody yeah, who told yeah. us she was a fan of the show. And, exactly. You know, yeah, well, I think I mean, we were, we're both we're, beaming, we're, weren't we? We're both get, getting used to being getting mobbed ex- by, we by, were by, by lawyers. Exira yeah. and Delira, or mm. whatever they used to say. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.